Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. Hello, beautiful people. Today we are talking to Nate Postalweight, um, whose last name is not spelled Postalweight. <laughs> I was like, how do you pronounce this? I've asked like five times. <laughs> but today we're talking about conversion therapy um, very specifically but in a more broad sense Nate is really passionate about all of you facing fears head-on and basically excavating yourselves and your lives of those and everything that's triggering that and causing that and helping you really find a space where you can heal from a lot of the traumatic things that have happened to us in our religious communities so is that an accurate description of what you're all about? I think that's great. <laughs> okay, I think cool. it's wonderful. <laughs> okay. So where to begin? There's so many different ways to touch on this that I think are really interesting because one is we were talking before we started recording about how you are not necessarily about getting anybody saved or convincing anyone that Christianity is a safe space or that religion is a safe place for people um, in the queer community to be in or that you need to be in hot pursuit of getting your faith back or being in a religious community when you've endured so much suffering as a queer person. Um, so I don't know, maybe we can start there. Like, if it's not about welcoming people back into the church and being like, oh, don't worry, it's safe for queer people now, then what are you really about in your mission? Yeah. That's a great segue. I, and like I said before we started, the intent of this conversation is to provide healing, comfort, safety, security for the people who are hurt, distraught, and don't know how to direct that pain and have a lot of conflict with their religion or their belief system. And I've gotten a lot of flack at times of saying, you know, you're bashing God, you're bashing Christianity. No, I'm not. I'm defending people who have been hurt. Where someone ends as far as their faith journey is none of my business. Each person's going to make decisions based on their life circumstances, their genuine desire. And that's just truly none of my business. What I am making my business are the people who are sitting in pain and hurting and don't recognize that they can talk about their hurt and that's not being disloyal to their faith. The pain is very valid and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that too because you were mentioning that you believe a lot of people feel like they are being traitors to the faith if they just admit to the harm that our faith communities have brought yeah. to others. Yeah. I mean, and not just queer community. Like, we were talking also about how purity is what cut me. Uh, Joe Lumen, my other podcast guest, colonization of church is what cut her. For you, being queer obviously cut you. Yeah. So there's so many different ways that we've caused harm. But why do you think people feel like they'll be disloyal if they just admit that the... the, the 
fruit of that doctrine was rotten and that it's hurt a lot of people. Well, I think you just touched on it. If we can't match our being and who we are to the doctrine that we grew up with, it's really detrimental to believing that we exist as a whole person or can feel like a whole person. And that doctrine was so detrimental and dangerous to especially the the young queer empath who was trying to understand who they were while having this really um, compassionate view of the gospel and this um, person who walked the earth and died for them on a cross and just this incredible love story. But then to have that love story with a strong P.S., it only applies if you're heterosexual. Yeah. You, you can't, I mean, you can't make sense of that. You can't, you can't figure that out. So I think along the lines of your platform and your um, being so valid, holding two thoughts in the same space and understanding that both can be true and they don't have to contradict one another. So what I would say to many people is you can say, I was so deeply wounded by my faith, by my experience, by Christianity, by Catholicism, whatever it is, and still choose to be Christian. Because the, the back end of that was what is represented in harming other people is not the true essence of what spirituality or religion is. It's yeah. a man-made fingerprint on a lot of damage that's being done unnecessarily and it needs to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, obviously I feel that so hard and I really agree, but I mean, again, I guess you're saying pretty explicitly it, you don't feel that it's your mission to separate what is good in the doctrine and what is terrible and has been, you know, toxicity. I feel like that's a huge part of my mission and Vicki Beeching as well. She's a queer Christian and she really desires to stay in the, the religion specifically because, one, we love Jesus, so we're like, hey, we have a right to be here. Sure. And, two, I think her and I, from what I've heard from her, feel this shared responsibility of being like, okay, we need to heal it from the inside. Um, but I like that you're saying, hey, stay in, come out, whatever, but, like, I am here on the other side regardless. You can have your faith. You can love Jesus and come to me and talk about it. Um but your main purpose is just that healing. So where does someone even begin to heal from a trauma like that? I think step one is being honest. Um, we are in a culture right now where we're inundated with so much, so many extremes that it's hard to be able to look at something and say, is there some truth in this? Is there no truth in this? If I acknowledge some of this, will it overtake my body? If I make this one decision, does it change the paradigm that I live in in every relationship that I have? Damn, and that's yeah. really scary. Yeah. My A lot of the work that I do with individuals is to really um, become, I call it the sacred self, understanding ourselves from the inside out and having a relationship with your inner self, your younger self, that really is able to look at the different chapters of life that have received harm, pain, confusion, trauma, I talk a lot about trauma, mm. um, and be able to look at those places and validate what has happened in order to move through it so that no, it no longer lives in your body. Yeah. Because at that point, it's still the lens in which you see life and make your decisions when those circumstances are living inside of you. 
Um, so I think that, and, and I also think that authenticity is like wildly underrated. <laughs> authenticity and honesty mm-hmm. is just wildly underrated and understanding that there's a place for anger. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very justified, sacred place for anger yeah. in your, your journey. So I think that authenticity is probably the first, the first step that's going to be the most beneficial. Yeah. Um, I really don't even give credit to the success of my platform for me. Like I do work on it a lot and I I hope it grows and grows, but really I know that the reason I've been successful is because of authenticity because I was like, okay, I've been thinking these thoughts privately. It's time to say them out loud because I know other people will share this experience and they'll find validation and camaraderie and peace. And for me, the first time I felt really validated um, besides the audience like coming out and being like me too me too which was incredibly validating continues to be but um, it was really when I read Linda K. Klein's book Pure and that was the first time that I saw my experience and my pain and my suffering outlined in detail through many different people's stories and all of a sudden I was like oh my gosh I'm really not alone, and this person sees me, and and there's even a religious trauma syndrome. It's even diagnosable at this point. So what do you find are common experiences that queer Christians or people that are coming out of Christianity find, like things that were inside of them that they thought were flaws in them, like anger or like, you know, for example? Let me me back up a second and tell you, where a lot of this started a decade ago. Yeah. Um, I had been in conversion therapy for several years. That started when I was 18 and there wasn't, there wasn't a choice. It was this demand of there's no room for any type of homosexuality in your world. So here, you know, here are your options. And so I did the whole, but you must have faced that before, right? Like as a younger Christian before 18 years old, Oh, for sure. As As a child, I, I grew up in the, the deep South and was in church three times a week. And so I learned at a very early age that anything having to do with me potentially being gay, I removed it so far from my conscience and awareness and built, started rebuilding myself as a kid to make sure that that did not exist anywhere in me because I was terrified. My heart hurts. It, yeah, I, I knew, I knew to cut that part off. And so at 18, what was so um, demented about this process was I went to a dorm leader, my dorm dad, a spiritual leader at this organization where I was a a missionary. I was in an environment where I felt safe for the first time. I went to bed at the same time every night. I woke up at the same time every morning. And I grew up in tremendous chaos and dysfunction. So I'd not had a lot of experiences where I felt calm. And that calm gave room for me to have my first breakdown about two months in. And what came out at that time was me explaining that at 12 years old, I had what I understood was a sexual relationship with a 36-year-old. Wow. And we can think now to what that 18-year-old person needed to hear about his younger self. And the unfortunate thing was this person was just so ill-equipped to give me proper care. And his response was, you need to repent for being involved in homosexuality. So that is a moment where, number one, I believed him wholeheartedly. There was nothing in me that was defensive. When you have experienced sexual abuse, the shame spreads so quickly. 
into fibers in your being that you don't know exists and it yeah. really becomes the way that you live your life. You live your life based on shame. And so I began conversion therapy shortly after that and was involved in different versions of con conversion therapy for several years. And then when I was 31 years old, after 13 years of therapy, every potential um, book about overcoming your sexuality, um, the, the label of being a sex addict, like all of this horrific therapy, at 31 I had a nervous breakdown. Mm. And at the time I was a vice president of an organization and um, my life unraveled overnight. Wow. And so much of that was my body and brain coming to a place where they could not function together anymore because the amount of pressure and suppression and can you pardon my ignorance but um a nervous breakdown is what does that actually manifest as what does yeah. it look like so it's funny because your nerves can't break down but they've always called it a nervous breakdown my diagnosis was um, complex complex post-traumatic stress disorder wow so that means that as you you have all of the functioning diagnosis of ptsd but it just means that you've lived in an environment and lived with multiple scenarios of trauma, which makes it complex, and that is deeply rooted in your brain, and your brain function is uh, focused on protecting and working with that trauma. At that time, during the, the breakdown, there was, I, I can't, the, the despair was unbelievable. I slept two hours a night I had to sleep in a different bedroom in my home because I felt unsafe in my room. I, um, I gained 50 pounds in the wow. matter of a few months. I shut the door, the blinds to my home, and I just disappeared. During that time, I was um, still seeing a Christian counselor. And as much angst as I have about the care that I got, being taught that you know being gay was wrong and it wasn't an option, what has been the most painful is looking back of the 10 months that I continue to have CPTSD and on a weekly basis here, pray more, read more scripture, um, look at this author, like all of these different things. And never was there a moment that said, I've got to get you help. I've got like, this is beyond the scope of what I, you know, what Even I know. Even in the midst of your nervous breakdown. Right. Like I was in his face every Wednesday at one o'clock standing oh before him God. in so much pain and saying... I didn't sleep last night. I had a dream that my abuser got back to me and there was just no awareness to say, number one, let's get you some sort of medication to regulate what's going on so that you can sleep. Um, let's get you some sort of diagnosis and understanding. So all of this came out much later. I went to a treatment center on my own 10 months later and um, that changed everything. All of a sudden I was with these therapists who had all these credentials after their their name yeah. and were highly, highly should. educated. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that treatment center changed everything. Shortly after that, I went back and just kind of looked at my life and thought, I've just gotten a taste of something that feels very real for me. And I don't like the life that I've built. So I sold everything and uh, left and moved away. That's when I moved to Southern California. Let's pause for a second. When did you get the... Um the terminology abuser like if you, when did you move into permission for yourself of being able to call this man what he was at the time of the breakdown 
So up until that point, I had never considered that that was sexual abuse. I In all 13 years. For 13 years, we never did work around that abuse. But we did constant work around my sexuality and how to grow my faith and how to understand masculinity and how to heal the relationship with my dad so that it would heal my, you know, my gayness and just... Oh man, there's it's, just I'm so, so it's, it's it's so. I'm going back to the beginning of the conversation where you talked about being an empathic, like bright, light, white, um, not white literally, but you know, like just a light being of a person that's just curious about faith, that's falling into this romantic story about a divine creator that loves you unconditionally, yeah. and how shame just ruins all of that and how it leaves you susceptible to abuse and it leaves you around people that are not protecting you from that abuse because they've named it by different names and they've made the problem you instead of the actual problem which is that there's nothing wrong with you and there never has been it's all about the way it's being mishandled in these circumstances that just really breaks my heart it's heartbreaking, and I have done so much inner child work around that little that little boy who, hmm. like, thinking about the message that he got, I, I remember coming home at five and six years old from Sunday school and would tell my siblings in a panic about the prayer request that I heard, and other people were not responding the same way, and I was genuinely concerned about every prayer request, no. and I would repeat them at home over and over and just say, listen, this person's grandmother, like, she may actually die, and just that really tender-hearted, compassionate kid mm. who so badly wanted to make sure that everybody was okay. And over time, when you're not, when you don't have the environment that really loves and continues to birth the new movement of who you are and really conditions and affirms that, you start to betray yourself. You have to... I dive into survival skills and make sense of things as they are. And that includes walking away from your, your sacred self. Mm. Expand on that. No child, no teenager has the capacity to kind of buck the system and just say, this is inappropriate, this is wrong. Yeah. We haven't even fully developed our brain enough to understand that we're going to be able to think differently from an abuser or something that's happened around us. And so we do whatever it takes to survive. And that is what's so damn powerful about inner child work. When you go back and you look at this kid, when I, when I began the inner child work, it was really fascinating because the first time the therapist said, can we invite, you know, the six year old in the room, my posture was, yeah, bring that little asshole in here because in my mind, he was the problem. Yeah. I heard all of these details of what happened as a kid, and my perception was he wasn't responding correctly, and that's what made me so angry. Mm. And so through years of inner child work, you really learn how resilient and powerful these kids are that were us, that helped us survive. They were crafty. They were powerful. They were uh, uh, adaptable. They did whatever it took to make sure we would have this voice right now and make sure that we were okay. And that is meant to be honored. I mean, that is meant to be celebrated. And so it took a while to understand how powerful it was just to survive that environment while denying self. Yeah. And now I see it complete. obviously I see it completely different. Right. 
As an empathic person, because I've been increasing in empathy um, to my dismay. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to feel this much. Yeah. I think that's a part of myself that I shelved for a long time and, and put up a lot of barriers and doors that are locked because I didn't want to feel so deeply. I really like took pride in being like a strong, powerful woman that didn't give a shit or whatever. And it's just like, okay, that's not who I ever actually was. That said, how do you ingest all of these stories and experiences from the people that you work with without it dragging you back down again? Yeah, I'm extremely conscious in my day-to-day practice of my work. Um, I am 42 now. I'm 24 years in on therapy. Started at 18 in the last 10 years. I've invested close to 400 hours in intensive trauma work. And so when I'm working with uh, someone, there's just always a clarity that I'm there to walk alongside them. Um, I'm not part of their narrative. They're not part of mine. And being able to give them the tools that help them understand what it looks like to validate self. Um, The other thing that I do that's a little unique is because of my experience with my own coaching and counseling that, that I had, the Uh, inappropriate boundaries I only coach for six months at a time and I do that to protect the client to be able to help them understand my coaching is set up to empower each person to become their best advocate I don't need the big thank yous I don't need the praise I'm not looking to be someone's guru I'm looking to help someone tap into who they are and the power and strength that they have and really connect with sacred self and move forward. I have a little bit of conflict with someone who works with the same coach for years on end. Um, I understand if you're reaching a new goal each time, that's great. Um, My program's just set up a little differently where it's very specific. We put a time, a timeline on it and say, what is it that you want to accomplish here and how do I walk with you through that process? And that makes it also very safe and secure where nothing's super open-ended where the person's left trying to understand or figure out where do I go from here? There's a beginning and there's an end to the process. I really like that. I'm sure that's really encouraging for people too because like any issues that I want to dive into when they feel unending can be really painful too. Yeah. And I think a lot of people can end up not wallowing in that space. I don't mean that to degrade anybody that's suffering through pain, but like just to say there is an end point, I think sounds so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did we want to talk about also? There's so many different angles to this that I'm curious about. Like, again, I'm still furious that so many queer people experience such genuine injustice. And there's so many people in the church that should be persecuted, that, that should be in prison, not persecuted, prosecuted. Maybe they were persecuted. That's not enough, right. actually. <laughs> and, um, and if that, like, we've been sweeping this stuff under the rug for so long. Um, do you ever, like, talk to people that are counseling younger LGBTQ people, or do you think there is a way to have church and still have a safe space for younger LGBTQ people? Or like how, I guess what I'm trying to ask is if you know someone that's younger and impressionable is in an unsafe space, they're in a non-affirming church, aka Mosaic, Hillsong, like these places that are supposedly come as you are that 
pull the rug out from under you and switch it on you at the right time. Um, you know, how, like, let's say your cousin is in it or just a friend's son or daughter. Obviously, I feel like you can't really overstep your bounds too much. But it's like, how can you as an onlooker try to help their families or them themselves understand that they are in a vulnerable position? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing I would say is this is why I started sharing my story. This is where I started my blog and podcast was to... reach the vulnerable who don't have other resources and don't know that there's a life out there that exists far beyond their pain mm. and their oppression. Um, I think the conflict is if it's a, if you've got a family and they know that their child is queer and they are going to a non-affirming church, the damage is being done is far beyond what you can see with your eyes. It is far beyond. It is um, teaching your child to, as I said earlier, betray themselves, but also to never trust instinct, to ignore their gut, to um, escape reality and step into a place with a level of pressure to make sure everyone else is okay. Yeah. I mean, first of all, can you explain what it is to be compartmentalized? What does that end up manifesting into? Because if they see their child just ingesting a casual Sunday where someone at Bethel says, by the way, LGBTQ is a sin, you know, how does that manifest immediately in a child or teenager? No child has the coping skills to know what to do with something about them being fundamentally wrong something about their wiring being wrong and if you think about the innocence there their only option especially when you're thinking about shame imagine I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much but just when you think about shame and you're teaching an innocent child something about them is inherently wrong you were teaching them that the most powerful source in the entire world is looking at them and disappointing. What choice does a child have in that? I put that right beside the thought processes of hell, like learning about hell at five years old mm-hmm. and being taught the sinner's prayer at five years old. Mm-hmm. What child is going to say, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to hold off on the prayer. And I'm going to weigh my options like, come on. Because I'm inherently good. Right. And God does love me. I thought you said he loves me unconditionally. This contradicts. Right. Yeah, you're right. Like, kids are so vulnerable to that. And I think that's the ironic thing. I don't know. I'm just calling these churches out by name right now because I'm just really angry. Um, Righteously so. And, um, for example... At Bethel, they keep talking about we're protecting the children, we're protecting the children from these trans rights votes and all this stuff, and we're all about protecting. And I'm like, that is so effed up, and ironically, so the opposite. You are the ones doing the damage. Kids aren't going around thinking about their sexuality when they're five years old. Like, it's indicated, it's in us since birth, um, but it doesn't mean that you're actively thinking about it, let alone 
attributing shame to it. And those are the things that are so destructive. And the proof is here now, everywhere you look. There's so many of us speaking out on this. Me, Linda K. Klein, Jamie Lee Finch, you, you know, Exvangelical Podcast, all these people are resources to be like, this is proof that you are damaging children with this mentality. And then they still won't turn away from it or even just consider a new way even if you believe being gay is a sin the bottom of your soul putting it on a shelf until they're at an age where they can actually process it which is still would would still be horrible but it's like you get these messages immediately and I don't know how anyone is supposed to cope um what do you say to the ways that we are manipulated into this belief one being the heart is deceitful above all things aka don't trust yourself if your intuition is screaming that this doctrine is wrong just shut up sit down because the bible says in six verses and you're just supposed to swallow it and keep moving what do you say to that principle of the heart is deceitful above all things how can we even say that to an innocent I mean, we're, we're born, even the thought that we are born sinners and we don't deserve God's grace. These are the same people who 25 years later are saying that God got them the house, the job. <laughs> so it's like you don't deserve the grace, but you deserve all this other shit that like really gives you a perfect looking life. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I think if you really consider, I, I said recently, and I mean this, there's nothing amazing about a grace that calls me a wretch. Like, why are we singing a song Mm. and promoting, saying, we're wretched, and that's why this grace is so amazing? I'm not wretched. Yeah, I was born a beautiful, amazing little boy in a really unfortunate environment. And I think that to teach these things to kids and then to say that it's on behalf of righteousness, a four-year-old does not know what that means. And it's, it's abusive, it's ignorant, and I think that... The conversations, this is what I was saying earlier, you know, what someone believes as far as their religion is none of my business. I'm working on behalf of the people who are carrying pain from that religion, trauma inside of their bodies, tremendous damage that's been done to them, and don't feel like they have a voice to be able to speak up and say, this is what's going on inside of me, and I feel lost and confused, and don't understand because... I've been given all of these other tools and resources like prayer and 16 Bible studies and whatever, and it's not helping me. And it's um, dismissing the fact that we all have brains and bodies, and within those brains are a very real response to traumatic events, and within those bodies are carrying all of that pain for years and years and not recognizing how hard that is as a human being who was also not born with a deceitful heart. Right. Amen. I mean, I agree completely. And also in purity culture and all of this, we're taught to compartmentalize our spiritual selves from our sexual selves and also our body from our spirit. One is elevated as divine and the other one is this piece of garbage that we have to sing about every Sunday of how disgusting it is. Right. And that's not what I read in the Bible, let alone what I read in my genuine communication when I'm in silence with the Lord I just get affirmation about who I am and I'm inherently good and I am beautiful and my body is my vessel that's to be honored not to be spat on and be called names and I think that all the work that you're doing with like energy work and everything I I hope more people will become aware of and any of you listening that are curious um, 
to know that there's a pathway out. I never knew this except from my conversations with Jamie Lee Finn. She's been so instrumental. Her book is called You Are, Our, you Are Your Own because it talks about how the body stores trauma. Yeah. And I think that's so fascinating. Could you explain a little bit about what your body does for you in a trauma experience? goes into flight or fight more than anything else and preserves. So the, the primary treatment that I did starting in 2009 was EMDR. And EMDR is, there are so many modalities, and I always preface this by telling people that I've heard a few scenarios where people who have had physical trauma where they say that they did not like EMDR, they did not connect with it, and that is completely okay. Um, I think who the practitioner is also matters greatly. But EMDR is a process where you're going back and imagine when you're eight years old and a traumatic experience happens. There's not a single eight-year-old on the planet who knows how to process that and say, this hurts, this is really unfortunate, or this should not be happening. That's, that's not possible for any eight-year-old. So what we do is we store that on one side of the brain, but we have it separate and we have them and have those thoughts and memories and categories. So let's say you're like bitten by a dog. Yep. So you'll just compartmentalize that in your brain somewhere. Completely. Yeah. Completely. So that's moved away. And then you live your life based on saying, I'll never, ever be around a dog again. I'll never go anywhere near a dog again. And then what you don't realize is that you're around dogs all the time and you're in constant fear and anxiety mm. because you've stored that memory in your brain and that memory is still controlling a big part of your life. Right. So regardless of not being bit by a dog again, it's still a huge part. So EMDR, um, there's several different ways that they do the process now, and uh, they continue to do more research and find more amazing things. But what it does is it goes back to the memory, and it has you step in as current self to address that memory. But the, the method that worked the best for me are the two fingers in front of my face where they're going back and forth, and you're watching it as you reprocess the memory. And what's so powerful is that memory that was stored in just the left side of your brain for so long, you poke a hole in it, you tap into that memory and you open it up, mm. and then it goes, instead of just being stuck in left, 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 it's then left center, left center, left right, left right. So then you've got a full context of what that is. And so mm. that 34-year-old who got bit by the dog at eight is then able to say, oh my God, I know how to keep myself safe from no longer being bit by a dog, I need to affirm that eight-year-old and say, I've got this, Mm. we're good. But that memory is just not the same. The first time I did EMDR, the next week I was at a Christmas party and some friends of mine said, your face looks different. And they said, you're laughing so much. Mm. And um, You're like, I'm on drugs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I got a new prescription finally. Um, But... But it was, it was evident, like after the first round, yeah. because you're tapping into such old stuff. And we don't realize that we build lives around never feeling that vulnerability again. It's the scariest thing in the world to us. But what we don't realize is that every time we feel anxiety or a lot of the other, the other emotions that come with pain, we're not recognizing the age of it is from when it happened. Right. So if you're 30 years old, and you have this really intense, unaddressed thing that happened when you were five. The reason it's so intense is because it's 25 years old and has not been addressed. But once you start moving into those, 
it's unbelievable the freedom that you have. Mm, I love that. And what's coming to mind too is that I can think of places in myself that I have so much fear and then I'll feel ashamed for being afraid. I'll be like, you're in your 30s, you need to buck up. And I will, the same as you, like shaming your childhood self, shame myself from that time and be like, stop trying to protect me in this way. And this body work and mind work that you encourage people to go into is all about thanking that beautiful spirit whatever age you were even if it was yesterday thanking that part of you that cares enough about your body your well-being your mind your spirit to have protected you and when your child self has thrown up a wall around you it actually I feel like it's bringing tears to my eyes because that's actually beautiful that's that's the best part of you the lightest brightest part of you that's saying okay, we've been hurt here. I'm going to make sure that you, for the rest of your life, never have to feel this pain again. But it's true. It's up to us as free-thinking adults and people you know, that can rise up on behalf of that child and say, 8-year-old Brenda, 8-year-old Nate, we're the adults, you're good, we got this, and then move in a way that is going to offer so much freedom. And I think being able to say, I'm so sorry I didn't get back to you sooner. I'm yeah. so sorry I did not come rescue you sooner. I had no idea you were hurting. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how much you've carried and how much you've done for me. Because listen, those parts of us are really tired. They're really tired and they're exhausted. And that's what shows up as anxiety, depression, a lot of the other things that people are figuring out. Why is this? Why does this come on so strong and so hard and so intense? And again, we're, we're talking about so much of this. I don't do EMDR myself. Like in my coaching, I teach people how to have the relationship with self. Yeah. With I mean, the which hopes. is a hopefully like good first step. Yeah. yeah. With the hopes that after my coaching, they go on to get further help. That's you know, amazing. they really, that lays the groundwork for them to say, I have such a better understanding of myself. Now I want to move into addressing trauma or whatever it, it means to really get my life back. Yeah. I love that. Um, what else was going to ask about that? Um, da, 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 da. I don't know. I'm losing my thought. I don't know. Are there any other components that you think need to be addressed? I just want to always say, I hear this on every podcast interview that I do. Someone reaches out and says, I couldn't relate to the details of what you were saying, but I couldn't stop crying. Wow. So I just want to say to anyone out there right now, if this is moving you, trust that a part of you is being seen right now that has not been seen in a very long time. And that part of you is so, so good and deserves to be seen. I just want to validate that I'm fighting it, but I actually feel like crying because there's such sincerity and love in your eyes. And I just want to thank you so much that you, as the empath, as this person with this strength that has been through so much, is willing to give back and give that to people because I've, I felt you looking into my soul and I want to express to anyone listening that Nate, I would say, is a very safe space to bring your inner child to and your full self to and to get and reclaim that permission to love every part of yourself, your wretched, disgusting body included. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And um, something that came to me in the shower the other day, which is my best thinking space, (laughs) Um, it felt divine. I was in a lot of anxiety and I, I feel because I'm becoming so empathic. We, at the top of this conversation, we talked about Corona. I was having a lot of trouble sleeping last night and I was tossing and turning and 
I was like, you know what? I actually think I'm tapping into collective conscious in those moments. And I'm going so hard on myself. Like, Brenda, get over it. Buck up. Go to sleep. Calm down. And obviously that never does me any favors. And in the shower, what came to me was anxiety is just fear unaddressed. And that is how it feels. Like, there's just, like, this fear bubble inside of me somewhere. And I'm just trying so hard to shame myself and shove it down that all it's doing is manifesting as my body shaking, not being able to sleep, making myself sick. You know, all of those things are just manifestations of allowing that fear and shame to fester inside of us. Yeah. often tell people that we view anxiety and depression as these really negative things yet the majority of humans on the planet will experience both at some point. Um, That's like an epidemic now. It, it absolutely is, but I think that we need to look at it and say, there's a part of you that is being trusted with some really sacred information for anxiety and depression to show up because it's mm. trying to exit your body. It's trying to leave your mind and it's beautiful your job to figure out how to get that out and coordinate that but i think we've been taught and we've over medicated this uh these situations to to say oh they're really anxious of course they are do you have any idea what they're carrying inside of their body do you understand Mm -hmm. what's been done to them can i read you my post from this morning yes please this is um one of the messages that i felt like were really important I wish instead of saying they're an alcoholic, they're anorexic, they're an addict, or they're crazy, we would say they're hurting and be curious about their pain. Mm. All of those diagnoses are important for treatment, but without curiosity, what are we doing? What are we doing? There's a reason that people are manifesting that kind of pain, and we've got to pay attention to it. And I think it's really easy for most of us um, to see other people's pain and validate it. Like reading a post like that, my you know parents and people that I love would come to my mind first. But to just give yourself permission to love yourself as much as the person who loves you the most loves you. Yeah. You know, like how much does my baby love me? Right. That's as much as I should love and care about myself and address my pain. Right. Because he would think I was worth it. Your Absolutely. mom would think you were worth it. Your mentor thinks you're worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And I think, too, think about the, the person that's easiest to give affirmation to. And what you're saying to them is what you should be saying to yourself. <laughs> yes. Amen. Exactly. It goes so hard on ourselves. Well... I mean, this is amazing. I, again, would like to reiterate that Nate is a wonderful person. This is our (laughs) second conversation, but I feel so much lighter and brighter just through this one conversation. So I can only imagine what six months would do. I hope you've forgiven the noise. Maybe you pretended that you were at a coffee shop eavesdropping on an amazing conversation. (laughs) Um, And pardon all the noise. But I don't know. Any final wrap-up thoughts? I think just the main thing is just... um when you're listening to this, like I said earlier, if something's resonating and you think that it doesn't pertain to you, just be really kind to yourself mm. and let whatever's going on, trust it and let it move through. Love that. And where can everybody find you? My Instagram handle and my blog and podcast are all the other side of saved. My coaching is storyconnectcoaching.com. Okay. Storyconnectcoaching.com. I love that because you value people's stories. Yeah. 
love that. Huge advocate of that. Jesus spoken stories, you know? (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Again, reach out to Nate um, if you're experiencing any of these things. And I'm sure you can also lead them to resources that would also be beneficial on this journey as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a resources page on my blog. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. I think that's always important because I just want to, like, ingest things when I can. So that's beautiful. And that's it. We love you guys so much. God bless.